You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we welcome Dr. Trina Spencer to the podcast to talk with us about what it means to be a humble behaviorist. As a board-certified behavior analyst herself, with over 20 years of professional experience and over 54 peer-reviewed article contributions in academic journals, we have so much to learn from Dr. Spencer. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. Thanks for inviting me to be a guest. Well, you're coming from a, a long distance, so I understand you're joining us from South Africa today. Uh, where you're helping the autism community over there and probably dealing with a lot of the same questions, controversies, and interdisciplinary challenges that we have. But can you tell us what you're up to? Sure, exactly. Um, I am in South Africa, Pretoria to be exact, but I've been traveling all over South Africa to the extent possible. And um, I'm a Fulbright scholar, and um, I really feel amazed and comfortable and so well adjusted in South Africa. I feel like I could be here for a, a very long time, happily. A little nervous about having to re-enter into my U.S. life. But some of the things that I've been doing here is working with the Center for AAC um, to maybe develop some research around more complex communication through AAC. Um, and then I'm also helping to establish um, ECHO autism um, units across the country. And we have recently established a um, advisory board for the entire South Africa around uh, autism education and treatments. And an ECHO stands for Extending Community Health Outcomes. So it's a, it's a great model for implementing and dis distributing knowledge. And it, you know, one of their taglines is moving knowledge, not people. And so, um, especially in South Africa, this is going to be an amazing um, innovation for them so that they can contact, you know, better resources and experts in the autism arena. So anyway, I'm just kind of helping set those up, doing a little mentoring to different units and really trying to build capacity locally here in South Africa to do that. And I'm, I'm sure that there's so much that we could learn from you on the communication part, but today probably is going to lean more on that experience with ECHO and being able to share all of the knowledge within disciplines across the field. And before we go there is all of us have a reason we got into behavior analytic work. Mm -hmm. And you're obviously in touch with the autism community as well, just because the, the ECHO program that, that you're working with is, is an ECHO autism program, which means that you're sharing all that information across a variety of medical and behavioral health and uh, just healthcare disciplines in general. So how did you get into behavior analytic and autism work? It's always nice to know kind of how we got rooted in what we're passionate about. Yeah, well, it starts in the early 90s. I'm not going to give you a history. I'm just going to tell you really quickly that uh, I was actually kind of more interested in biology and my first research um, my first research grant was examining the uh, rubella antibodies related to autism diagnoses. And it was laboratory work in, in an immunology lab, which was really cool. It was funded by Howard Hughes Medical Institution as an undergrad. But the truth is, I was 
way too social for that work because it was boring laboratory and nobody was around. It was, you know, really quiet and I wanted to talk to people and engage with people. And it was also around the same time I had my very first introduction to behavior analysis um, at Utah State University. And seriously, two days into this class, I was like, finally, this is a science that works for me right? This behavior, this social interaction, it's still a hardcore natural science like I was drawn to, um, but had this social piece of human interaction. And I really value humanness, like every bit of being humans, our, our weaknesses, our strengths, our adaptability, our transformation abilities. Those are the things that I can really I don't know, appreciate and respect. And so I wanted to be a part of this like very dynamic, socially dynamic uh, field that also, uh, you know, really had a strong natural science basis. So behavior analysis was like a love at first sight moment for me. So since uh, 1994, I have been a card carrying behavior analyst. <laughs> but yeah. but your route there probably explains a little bit of why this idea of interdisciplinary care is so important is that you came from the research, the medical, the, the side that a lot of behaviorists aren't necessarily introduced to or feel like they have to have open ears to. And I want to kind of get deep into that during our conversation today, because I think that that is something that is dangerous within our field is the fact that we aren't oftentimes willing to know what we don't know and willing to ask the questions and and be respectful of the fact that there are con contributors in the field. So before we go into what it means to be a humble behaviorist, I'd actually love for you to set the stage and give me your reality of where are we right now? as a field and how are we attacking these issues yeah I, oh that's a that's such a great question jeff i'm really glad you asked that so right now today we're swimming in controversy let's just say that we're just swimming and maybe we're not swimming maybe we're drowning you know it depends on who you are whether you're drowning or swimming or dog paddling you know we we have it we the controversy is there and we're getting um we're getting input and feedback from consumers, from our peers, other health professionals, and from families, um, and, you know, from, in some cases, even from policymakers or, you know, politicians, like, we're getting this from all different sides. Now, unfortunately, I feel like some of these controversies around um, treatments, uh, based on applied behavior analysis, could have been prevented. But, you know, hindsight is always 2020. That being said, these are the kinds of issues that have actually worried me for many years. And being a natural scientist to start with and recognizing that applications vary based on social context, right? It wasn't difficult for me to see the mistakes we were making in the implementation in social context 20 years ago. And actually, more than 20 years ago, I went to New York and worked in the areas where autism treatments were very popular. They were just starting kind of like a genesis and, you know, really like a concentration of that. And while there were great things happening, there were also some 
not so great things happening. And now you hear from the adults who experienced those treatments 20 something years ago, and they're saying, hey, I didn't like that, right? And I didn't like what was happening, but I didn't necessarily have the power or the authority at that time to make those changes. But um, I certainly was uncomfortable in some of those things. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm bringing this to this paper now that I actually, felt these tensions that are expressed in this paper um, on humble behaviorism back 22 years ago. And I had those interactions with different uh, professionals and I worked through some of those tensions then. And I was like, man, if we're not careful, this is just going to snowball. This is going to get worse. And right now it's worse. We're in the fire. We're absolutely in the fire. And um, there, there are some really great things. I don't want to paint the picture that it's all doom and gloom. There's some really great things happening. One, we're seeing a lot of behavior analysts listening. They're listening to their colleagues and they're listening to autistics. And that is that is amazing. That's the that's what they should be doing. I want more behavior analysts to be doing that, right? Um, so that's a great, great progress. Number two, there are more behavior analysts advocating. We're standing up, we're pissed off, and we're mad that things are not going very well and that people are criticizing maybe us for something that somebody else has been doing, right? And that should piss us off. We should be mad about that. And we need to stand up and advocate rather than, you know, being complacent and letting it continue. And so that's happening right now. And I think that uh, we are seeing more clients former clients, current client, uh, clients becoming more educated and uh, striving to have more accurate information. So that's a great, that's a great place that our, our community is in right now to wade through all the misinformation. They've got to persevere a bit to, to get through the misinformation and to be more um, skeptical or more educated consumers of, uh, of the science. And so, um, and then we're also seeing some, I would say, interprofessional gains. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but Association for Behavior Analysis International put out a resource document. It was actually the practice board for ABAI that put out a resource document in 2020, late 2020, um, on interprofessional collaboration between behavior analysts and speech-language pathologists. And I happened to lead that work group and I'm still working in that arena to try to build bridges across the American Speech Language Hearing Association and Association for Behavior Analysis International. So I'm still working to try to kind of mend some fences there and bring them together to move forward in a in a collaborative, congenial way. So I'm excited that those things are happening. I think they're about 20 years too late, but I'm still <laughs> happy they're happening. It's, it's funny is that, I mean, so a lot of us have gone the, the same path is that uh, as much as we were rooted 20 years ago, because I, I actually experienced a lot of what you're describing is we were rooted in the science. We were trying to almost take a lab science and immediately implement it within the community structure. I think we have gotten better. And I think that, like you said, is that we have maybe a little bit of, of right to be frustrated if people are trying to correlate what we were doing 20 years ago to what's going on now. But part of that is the fact that we didn't disseminate the changes over time. We, we weren't open to the communication and, and actually transparent about 
you know, we we know that some of these practices needed to change. This is how they've evolved. This is what it should look like now. And this is what we're doing to make it better. But that interdisciplinary part that you were talking about, um, and you're doing it sounds like wonderfully with the speech language community. Um, I went the same path the community is like, all right, there's so much out there that I don't know that's affecting these children. We have to be able to build these bridges immediately because it's a collaborative care. How does humble behaviorism tie into that working? And I, I guess we start with what is humble behaviorism? Yeah. All right. Good. Well, I think that's a that's a great question. But I think first we need to define what disciplinary centrism is, because humble behaviorism is actually the remedy to disciplinary centrism. And to, to take a medical example, if we don't have a, a clear diagnosis, our, our remedies are going to maybe be misapplied. And we need to understand why we're struggling to collaborate um, effectively. And, and so the, 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 the diagnosis is disciplinary centrism. And once somebody hears that term, they go, oh, of course, because all disciplines actually experience disciplinary centrism. It is not unique to behavior analysts. And uh, it is essentially disciplinary centrism is basically this belief that your own discipline is superior to another's discipline and that your field has the final word. Right? And it's like the professionals from one's own discipline are smarter and better trained than professionals from other disciplines. So I also have a school psychology master's degree and I was repeatedly told, you will be the smartest person in that school. I was repeatedly told that in training. And I bet you other people have heard the same thing. Like you are the expert in this. You are the authority on this topic, right? And that right there is establishing disciplinary centrism and that happens in almost all fields. Um, disciplinary centrism is very self-oriented. It's like truth by Trina, truth by my discipline and my knowledge. And it also probably um, facilitates this idea that we already know what other people believe, value, knowledge, what their behaviors are, just based on what kind of discipline they come from, what kind of category or label they have. Um, like a really good example that I experienced was in one of in a committee meeting, a behavior analyst said to the speech language pathologist, yeah, but your field is unscientific. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, you don't even know their field. How could you say that? Like, you, it's not your field. Right. But that's a really good example of this, you know, assuming that, you know, what other people believe and do. And I actually had that same experience. People tell me all the time, but you do this. You sit knee to knee to a kid and 40 hours of discrete trial teaching and it looks so rigid and it's so mechanical. And I was like, have you ever seen me do that? Really? You know, so like we don't like it when people make assumptions about what we do because of our our, you know, identity. But we do it all the time to others. And then disciplinary centrism also blinds us to the contributions of other fields. So it basically is like, if it's not published in Java, it's not real, you know? Or if it's not published in a behavior analytic journal, or if it's not in my textbook, it's not real. And a really great example, this is really funny, a really great example is a speech language pathologist who is trying to talk to a behavior analyst in this school that she works at about story champs. And story champs happens to be a curriculum or a program that me, a board certified behavior analyst, and my colleague, who's, who's a speech language pathologist, developed together. 
And so the SLP is telling the behavior analyst about this program. And she goes, no, that's not behavior analytic. I'm not using it. And she's like, well, actually, the primary author is a behavior analyst. And she's like, oh, then let me look at it. It was just like, oh, my gosh, that's disciplinary centrism at its best. Right. Yeah. But I love stories like that because, again, that's the diagnosis. That's our problem. So to yep. be a humble behavior. Sorry, did you want to interrupt me there? Oh, uh, no, no I, um, when you were going through that, Trina, it's, I, I sit back and I, I do want to really understand that the disciplinary centrism, it sounds like it's a construct that we're putting towards treatment and clinical work right now, but it also sounds like it's it's a societal issue right now. I mean, we have disciplinary, we have cultural sense, uh, centrism. We have every single thing is that people are so rooted in their opinion of this is how it should be because this is what I think, or this is my knowledge base. And it feels like tackling this problem is something that it, it's a big step. And it's something that is gonna take numerous open minds and almost like a, a map to get there is, and, and that's what I wanted to kind of hear when you're talking about the humble behaviorism. And so you, you've diagnosed a lot of the problem with disciplinary centrism. Yeah. And, and that's what I'd love to hear is how do we get around this? Because it isn't something that's just unique to ABA. It's everywhere. But we can solve it within our, within our discipline under, under certain parameters, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I think the, the construct that I need to explain next is really cultural humility. And you you tagged it just right. It's not just about discipline, right? And then if you think about it, each discipline is its own culture. You know, culture really is a collection of, of you know, language and overt behaviors based on a common learning history. And so behavior analysts have a culture, speech language pathologists have a culture, even like parents of children with autism, they have a culture because they hang out together and they support one another. They have a, they have some lingo that they use, you know, like they develop those kind of behaviors and language systems over time. And so if we, and, and autistic individuals are their own culture, right? So if then we take this idea that cultural humility can then counteract or conserve the remedy to disciplinary centrism, then that's what we're looking for. It's the opposite of that, which is the ability to maintain uh, opposite of disciplinary centrism. So cultural humility is the ability to maintain an interpersonal stance that's like a that's open to opposing views. And our society right now is really struggling with this. And you know, I'm I'm actually my family, my home is in Florida. And if you don't want to hear about Florida politics, it's hard. It's hard not to. It's hard to avoid it. But right now we're banning books because they encourage being open-minded. So yeah, our society is becoming even less open-minded, right? So we must be more aware that these are the things that are going to actually progress us as a society. Okay. Cultural humility, sorry, politics aside, cultural humility recognizes that you can never be competent in somebody else's culture. Right. You can't make an assumption that, you know, beliefs, values, knowledge of somebody else just because of their identity. And then cultural humility recognizes that one's culture or their beliefs, values, behaviors is actually a result of multiple cultural identities intersecting. Right. We are not a single identity. I am not just, you know, female. I am not just, um, you know, a behavior analyst. 
right? I, I have other, I have other identities that create me um, to be the unique person that I am that contribute to my beliefs, values, and knowledge. So we have to, people who are culturally humble will recognize that everybody and intersectionality impacts everybody. It is a very other oriented stance or position to be. So you're constantly viewing yourself in relation to other people and really putting yourself in their shoes. And cultural humility demands that we reflect on our own biases and we avoid making assumptions about others. And it, and it really puts us in a place where we can understand ourselves um, in relation to other people. And so that's, that's, that's super hard to do for a lot of, I mean, I, for myself included at times. I, I, it's, it's hard to sit back and remove a bias that you might have when you've been trained through education, because it, you know it's not just not fixed in practice. It's not fixed right now in the educative system that a lot of the people are going through with their training is that there has to be more emphasis on this and it's not quite there yet. So you train <laughs> differently. And so I, I think I understand that where people are coming from, but it doesn't mean that we don't need to change it. There's so much mm -hmm. to be able to learn out there I, are there are there specific examples that that you've seen or or kind of even cited where the culture of the behavior analytic field, whether that's even from top down, from the BACB all the way down to individual practitioners, has led to wow, we missed we missed the boat on this one, or we we really shut our ears to what was going on because ultimately is that this input from another discipline would have made us stronger so much quicker. Mm -hmm. have you, do you have any examples of kind of where that's fallen? Or I think I saw something about social stories or social thinking that you had referenced that, that might fall into that gap. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. I, 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 as you were asking the question, I was like going through my mind, which of these do I choose? Because there's so many examples that I could talk about here. But since you mentioned social thinking in particular, I, I love this example because this is actually, I can't remember what year it was, maybe 2016, 2017, uh, there was an article published that criticized this program called Social Thinking. And Social Thinking was developed by some clinical speech-language pathologists who had definitely let, read the research and drawn from the research that was available to them to develop this program. Yet they were not researchers and did not, you know, do these large-scale randomized, large randomized control trials to test the efficacy of this program. Nonetheless, it's a program that's available to many clinicians. And, you know, for some of them, they, they really like it. Well, anyway, a set of behavior analysts um, who may have uh, their own conflict of interest because they have a competing kind of uh, intervention approach um, in a pub, in a peer reviewed journal criticized this program up and down and called it pseudoscience. And this just irritated me to no end because I don't think it's okay to criticize somebody else's like uh, something from somebody else's field because their science is in a different place than ours are, ours is right you can't compare across these things i had a I, my phd was in disciplinary um disciplines sorry yeah, disability disciplines was the name of my phd and we had rehabilitation 
and vocational rehabilitation, speech language pathologist, special education, behavior analysis. And one of the big ahas was that everybody's research literature was in different places. Some of the fields were really far advanced and like nothing but randomized control trials would be acceptable. And in others, it was like still in these early phase kind of studies. So it's very inappropriate to criticize another field for where they're at in the development and the refinement of their science. That's what was happening. And then to call this program pseudoscience, when in fact it was based on the current available science, right, was, was incredibly disciplinary centric and it caused a lot of defensiveness because it was, I mean, to me, to me, that's just unethical practice. You don't call somebody out publicly like that, you know, and to what benefit? Why, why would you do that? So that the, you hurt those other people. So you hurt their business. That's just not even mature. That's not adult like anyway. So I, I watched that paper and I'm I'm quite dialed in in the speech language pathology field. As a matter of fact, I spend more time and and I would say, you know, 80% of my publications are to those audiences and 20% are to behavior analytic audiences. It's a place I'm very comfortable with. But I saw SLPs be very upset and offended that behavior analysts would do that. And of course, then they generalize and overgeneralize to all behavior analysts. Oh, behavior analysts are rude. They are rigid. They are arrogant. And you know what? They might have had one or two personal experiences with a behavior analyst like that. I'm like, no wonder they think that, right? No wonder they do. I also want to say one other piece about that. One of the answers I was thinking about is about about the same time, our, the BACB um, code of conduct had a phrasing in one of the regulations. I can't remember which which it is right now, but it basically said that we should um, uh, cooperate with other disciplines, but we did not, the, the, the regulations did not say collaborate, or it might've said coordinate, coordinate or cooperate. I can't remember now, but anyway, that was another sticking point where the SLPs were like, they don't even have like an ethics code that requires them to collaborate. And so behavior analysts had no, no motivation, right? They had no reason to collaborate. And not only that, the rest of the statement was like, as long as it is consistent with behavior analytic con concepts or something like that, the science of behavior. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. So you only need to coordinate or, or cooperate with other disciplines if it suits you and if it looks good for applied behavior analysis. To me, that code was extremely disciplinary centric and it caused major wedges with with between behavior analysts, like practicing behavior analysts and other professionals. Fortunately, the new code that just went into effect in January has different language and it's very humble. And it says that we are required to collaborate with other disciplines and that when there are disagreements, then we self-reflect and compromise. And those are two of the action steps that um, my colleagues and I put in this paper on humble um, behaviorism about self-reflecting self and making compromises. Um, so the, now it's in the code that BAC, B, BCBAs are now ethically responsible for collaborating and not just coordinating or cooperating with other professionals. Anyway, long answer to your question, but it was a good. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of, one of the byproducts of that has got to be is the fact that it forces active listening 
it forces people to come to the table and talk about a treatment plan. It, autism is not is not it's a complex um, mm -hmm. set of of social and behavioral um, nuances. Yeah. yeah, and when you're looking at that and you're trying to be able to establish it, it's it's going to take a team of people to really understand. It's going to take physicians. It's going to take at times. It's going to take mental health workers. It's going to take uh, behavior analysts. It's going to take speech. It's going to take occupation. It takes a team to be able to do this. And if people aren't working in unison, now you've delayed the prognosis of care because everybody is working in silos. But at the same time, what you described as far as being able to compromise, self-reflect, and I think that there are two others that are in there. I can't remember. Yes. Listen, probably. Listen. <laughs> so we've got to listen. So self-reflect. So um, he's he's a, I'm going to elaborate here on cultural reciprocity. So that's kind of the action steps, right, for behavior analysts to take. The first one is you have to self-reflect. You have to analyze your own biases, and you have to actually recognize that you have them before you're going to engage in anything. You've got to recognize them. And I so appreciate that the new ethics code has self-reflect explicitly in there. That we must do that. We have biases and we, everyone has biases. You have to recognize them before you can make any progress. Number two is listen. We've got to listen to our colleagues. We've got to listen to our clients. We've got to listen to the families. We must listen because we, we can't make assumptions we do not know. And then number three is to validate them. This is the thing that's really hard for behavior analysts. We have to say, yes, that's good. That's what you're feeling, and it's okay that you're feeling that, and it's okay that you think that, and it's good that you're thinking that, right? And really validate that somebody else is making a contribution and that they have science or that they have evidence that drives their clinical uh, recommendations and practices. We just have to acknowledge that they have something to contribute, and they have a lot to contribute when you actually look at that. And then the fourth one, of course, is making compromise which is really just about continuing to communicate with these people who think differently than you until you can reach common ground, right? Until you have a, a, a direction to move forward. And this is cyclical. You, you don't stop self-reflecting now that you're listening and you don't stop listening once you're validating. You've got to keep going in these cycles. You've got to self-reflect, listen, validate, compromise all the time. And you grow as an individual if you can approach every interprofessional or every professional interaction with clients and families, in addition to other professionals, with this cultural humility, right? So this process of cultural reciprocity should bring us to a greater awareness of our own um, limitations and the strengths of other professionals and recognize recognizing that those are individuals, like we can't just say all SLPs do this or all physical therapists know and believe this, that's just not true. And all autistic clients need 40 hours of discrete trial training. Well, we know that's not true, like mm -hmm. we know it, but those are the kinds of like, almost like stereotypes that we have in, in and they're just common all the time, all the time, all the time. But we can break them down if we practice cultural reciprocity, approaching every every unique relationship as an individual relationship and navigating and kind of negotiating this this reciprocity between two individuals or multiple individuals. And logically, if my goal is really the the patient or the client, 
And I know that there's a team involved. It shouldn't be about me proving a concept. It should be about me finding the appropriate holistic treatment that incorporates all of their care providers and themselves as stakeholders into decision-making. And it's it kind of befuddles me, but I, I think I know where it comes from. It comes from the fact that behavior analysts had to try and prove their science and prove themselves for so long. And you start in a defensive standpoint, but now I think we're at the point that that could be a major detriment for the future of the field if we don't start pivoting to realize we don't know everything and it takes a village to raise a child. And it's same thing with being able to work through and being able to kind of help empower people is that it's going to take a lot of voices to give all the skill sets somebody needs to be as independent and to contribute at whatever level they want. So how do you coach a new BCBA? Because they're coming in trying to prove them. They're young often trying to prove themselves, not only their science. So how do you get them to start thinking through that process? Mm. Okay. So that's, that's like one of my favorite questions, and I wish I had control of everything, <laughs> everything in their environment, right? But the start really is changing the way we teach them. So in universities and in programs, you know, training programs, we need to stop teaching silos, teaching in silos. And um, so many behavior analytic programs, they're actually withdrawing from the other fields that we might be embedded in. So originally you know, behavior analytic courses were taught in special education and in psychology. So they were getting some other kind of coursework, some other kind of context. Um, but now they seem to be specializing a little bit more like applied behavior analysis only. And let me tell you the, the fear I have, and actually it's more of a warning about that, that people are not quite recognizing is that when you get a degree in behavior analysis and it's just in behavior analysis, all you have is the science of behavior and learning. You have absolutely no content. Okay. There is no content or application of that in those programs. Well, I mean, there may be in some programs, but in the, in the courses and the way they're, they're doing it. So it's not like applied behavior analysis applied to special education or like how applied in psychology and counseling or something like that. And so we have to be very careful that we are training our new, um, you know, our trainees that although the principles of behavior are universally applicable does not mean they, they are universally competent and that in order to apply the science of behavior, they must a learn additional content and gain experiences that make them competent in that context or they must work with someone else who already has that competence. And that one, B, B, is actually the better solution because it is not reasonable for a behavior analyst to be competent in every type of application context that we would want to, to apply the science. That's not reasonable. We have to work with, you know, um, pediatricians. We have to work with social workers. We have to work with, um, you know, speech language pathologists. They have an expertise. They have content expertise. What about literacy? You know how many times people ask me where, you know, you're a behavior analyst. How do you know so much about teaching reading? And I was like, from reading teachers, <laughs> like I jumped in and helped teach reading. You know, they taught me how to do this. 
Of course, like it requires learning a new uh, content area and it requires collaborating with people who already have that content competence because behavior analysts have no competence in, in any of these application contexts unless they've gone through some additional training. And in fact, what usually happens is the only application context they're getting in their field experiences is as an RBT or as a direct care provider with autism. And while that's a great field, I think that's a good thing, it is too narrow and it becomes too prescriptive. They learn procedures in that context, not how to apply a science to new problems, new contexts, new people, and that's a new content, I guess. That's to me the biggest worry about how we're training our new BCBAs. And we can fix that at the university by creating interprofessional education programs. I don't know, it's mentioned in the in the paper we're talking about, Humble Behaviors and Redux. By, by the way, I wanna give a shout out to my co-authors because they're amazing. I probably would not have engaged this uh, activity without them. Megan Kirby is a huge motivator to me. She was my doc student and she just always encouraged me to be courageous and to say the right things. And then um, Shane was also a great collaborator on that project. And he's just he's just been a great advocate for doing the right thing. And I really appreciate both of them. Um, anyway, so in the paper we mention in a professional education, and that is a piece that we can do in our programs. We can change the way we train um, at the university to make the programs and their field experiences to be interprofessionally collaborative so that behavior analysts are learning the value and the contribution of those other fields. And, you know, I personally came from a PhD program that was interdisciplinary, and it was the it was the best thing in my life. I'm, I have every positive feeling about my career today and my ability to work in this space because I was trained this way. Those are, um, each one of those experiences is, is invaluable. I mean, it's, it's one of those things is that you, you learn little skills from each one of the exposures you have that create a wonderful, well-rounded clinician. I think, unfortunately, it sounds like it might be an uphill battle to get interdisciplinary, because I think that there's more of a push towards still trying to specialize the ABA field versus making it broader. But I, I think that it's a, it's a noble effort to continue to talk about and put out there. Um, and we could probably talk about so many things on all of these subjects, but for the idea of interdisciplinary uh, care and for the idea of being more uh, competent as far as just interdisciplinary culture, where where could people go? Where can they learn more? How should they start to educate themselves in this process other than the universities? Because it sounds like that might not be fully vetted yet. <laughs> um, are there other places where they can reach out to? I would say right now, um, and, and in recent years, there's been more written about interprofessional collaboration. Behavior Analysis in Practice published a series of articles, I think a special issue actually, recent, recent, recently, like maybe 2021 on interprofessional practice. Um, so a good colleague of mine, Lena, she has written some really great things. And she runs an interprofessional conference between speech language pathologists and behavior analysts in New Jersey. 
Um, so I think there are some conferences and some events that we're seeing that are a lot more interprofessional. Um, Mary Jane Weiss has also published some things on interprofessional collaboration. So behavior analysis and practice may be a good place to go find some additional resources. There's some references in our paper, um, the, the WHO, um, the IPEC Interprofessional Education Council, I think is what it was called, or collaborative. Um, the references are in the paper. Um, they, they're they a little, it's, what's interesting is they're a little older now, but behavior analysts haven't been drawing on them. Um, so it's, it's kind of, um, you know, other professions, other health professions adopted these, you know, IPEC uh, standards quite early and behavior analysts haven't. And I would urge behavior analysts, anybody who is, who is interested in building interprofessional collaborations, whether it's integrating into their classes or looking at more guidance, the world has this, you know, this came from the, the uh, interprofessional education collaborative, which was in 2016, and they outlined these collaboration competencies. So I, our paper barely touches on them, um, uh, but other papers on interprofessional collaboration elaborate more on them. Um, the other thing that seems to be pretty popular these days are like podcasts, right? And I think that there is a fair number of people talking about these issues. Um, I think people are talking about social validity, about evidence-based practice and the ethical use of evidence-based practice. So I would really like people to like be looking out for those kinds of topics. Um, and then, you know, I, I also have seen some really good like um, professional learning communities or journal reading groups that people are doing for, you know, a CEU credits on some really great topics. And then the other conference um, that I would suggest people go to if they're behavior analysts, they should definitely go to the WEBA conference, Women in Behavior Analysis. Trust me, it's not just for women, um, but it is a phenomenal conference where they're talking about these really sticky issues and they're doing a lot of cultural reciprocity. They're self-reflecting, listening, validating, and really working towards compromise. And I big shout out to the Weba folks. The best things I can um, think of right now. And then let me just say also, listen to your colleagues, listen to the other professionals, and listen to autistic voices. Please listen. Just do it without being defensive, right? Yeah. It's okay. You can validate them, and you will be fine. You know, <laughs> it's not. It's not gonna. It's not gonna hurt you to say, "I'm really sorry that happened to you." You know. Tell me how I can change so I never do that again. That's not that hard. We can do it. We can do it. Well, I, I appreciate that insight. And I also appreciate all those resources. And I mean, ultimately, if we all walk away realizing is that we, we get stronger by building bridges, not by creating divides and canyons, is that, you know, maybe just that philosophy itself that you've kind of put very clearly in your paper it it helps us to realize that you know you you do so much better by being bringing the communities together than you do trying to be able to separate but dr spencer i appreciate your time today on our podcast and we hope to be able to get you back too because there sounds like there's so many other controversies that we can kind of talk through and uh, you're so articulate on them and and i think you bring out some points that sometimes i don't even think about so uh, thank you so much for joining us you're welcome. I'm, I'm glad you had me. And as you can see, I'm not shy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world.
Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.